Hello, I'm Jason Concepcion. I think that's too much energy to start with. 20% less. Okay. <coughs> Hello, I'm Jason Concepcion. Uh, I don't think that was it either. 5% either direction. Either direction? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Jason Concepcion. Let's do that one. Let's do that one. Can you just let me do it? Just let that, me do it. Okay. Hello, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shay Serrano. We have a podcast coming out. It's called The Connect, and it's f***ing cool. Each week, Shay and I will talk about two movies and the theme that connects them. For example, for our debut episode, which comes out July 22nd, the theme is Work Friends. I'm talking about 1999's Office Space. It's about three friends who work at a technology company. And I'm talking about 1983 Scarface, which is about two best friends just trying to make their way to the top of Miami's very competitive cocaine industry. Another theme we'll have is Mean Mentors. I'm talking about Fletcher from Whiplash. Jason's talking about Miranda from The Devil Wears Prada. Another theme. How about Matthew McConaughey doesn't understand <laughs> outer space? I'm talking about Contact. Jason is talking about Interstellar. And yet another theme. Oh, man, why'd you do that? <laughs> I'm talking about Juice. Jason's talking about Lady Bird. There are categories and bits and contests. It's a whole thing, and it's going to be great, or it's going to be terrible. I don't know. But I'm excited to find out. Me too. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Look, if you want, I could use you inside like we did praise last year. If I hear the music, I'm going to dance. Did he have hands? Did he have a face? Yes? Then it wasn't us. He was who he was. who leeches off just like you the culture man. of drugs excuse me i got the shotgun got the briefcase it's on the game though right you know it is appropriate man that we're both wearing red because mm. you know tiger woods Back when he was regularly competing for championships, you know, he always wore the Sunday red when he was about to lay the game down quite flat. It's crazy. I remember that's so like they were like, who's going to win Tiger or the field in golf? You know, we can say what we want about Tiger. He will wear the red. But that was dominance like we've never seen before. Shout out to Tiger. I hope you're somewhere right now eating in the parking lot of a Hooters uh, because of COVID. And getting all that you need from all the waitresses that you see. <laughs> but it wasn't Hooters, though. His preferred restaurant, as a former Orlando resident, I hate that I know this, is it was uh, it was actually Perkins. But might I say, Perkins? Yeah, Perkins. It's like Denny's, Bob Evans type of place. Mm -hmm. And I will say, this particular per Perkins is in one of the richest neighborhoods in Orlando. This Perkins was banging. Is that a poor choice of words? No, I mean, I mean, no, we, we got the red on, but I'm saying it like what what did they have at this purpose? Oh, I mean, you know, again, it's like a Denny's like, you know, oh, I it, see. it was known for breakfast, you know, oh. pancakes. The pancakes was hidden. Yeah. And so I was just like, I ain't mad at him for going to Perkins. Now, what he doing the parking lot of Perkins, <laughs> that's that's on him. But I ain't mad for it. But anyway, <laughs> the red is good because this is. Our championship, so to speak, because Yay! we are wrapping up. That's right. We're wrapping up season two. Uh, thank you all for hanging with us all season. 
uh, to discuss what we consider to be a great bridge season. I mean, it's a great season overall. You guys have heard us say this repeatedly throughout season two. Every episode we possibly could, we mentioned how season two gets the short end of the stick by most Wire fans. And it's such a pivotal season. Uh, what were your overall takeaways from this season of The Wire? Uh, it is a blueprint. I've said this before for how the rest of the wire, the rest of the wire goes, right? Um, so it's like in music, there's always sort of a bridge album. Somebody comes out and they get on their their uh, their really gully gangster type, whatever, especially in hip hop, and then either they win with that uh, forever or they change, right? And there's always an album where you can see their style changing. You know, Hove was good because he went through a couple of different ones where the sound actually changed. This season right here, The Wire, is where it kind of changes a little bit. Number one, season number one was a pretty, I guess, binary back and forth between the street and uh, the dealers. You know what I mean? Um, But this one, in this season, it was the street, uh, excuse me, the cops, the dealers, and then the activities in the port. And from now on in the wire, you're always going to see sort of three different systems challenged at once. Uh, in season three, it's going to be uh, the cops versus the street, and they're going to throw politics in there. Season four, you're going to see the cops versus the street, and they're going to throw the school in there. Season five, you're going to see the cops versus the street, and they're going to throw in what's going on at the paper. So this is the first one where they shoehorn something in and it's almost like a litmus test. They give the audience, uh, they they give it to the audience and ask the audience if they can handle it and they really pull it off well. So the show fundamentally changes to me during this season. Uh, yeah, I would agree because I think more so, much more so than in season one. Season two deals with something that's even more relatable than some of the same themes that we saw in season one. Season two starts to pick apart this concept of the American dream. Mm. That's what the whole season is about sure. is you have people who have been working on this port, working as blue collar workers forever, who have been assigned this fate. Many of them didn't even choose it. And they have this relatable and understandable and universal quest to do better by themselves and for their entire families. And we see how easy that's manipulated because mm of the PR campaign of believing that you are entitled to better when there is no system in place for you to actually access better. True. Now they established some of this in season one, uh, more or less from a kind of a street level, you know, mentality, but I think they really crystallize it in season two. And I agree with you that this does lay foundation for how overarching the themes are in the wire from here on out. If you think about it, I mean the, the next season, as you said, we're going to get an introduction into politics one-on-one mm -hmm. and how that itself has helped to corrupt this pursuit of the American dream for everybody. And then of course, season four is education. Season five is the media. So David Simon was always picking these very overarching concepts and allowing us to kind of tie all these threads together to understand fundamentally what's right and wrong and corrupted in America. So for that I really um, thought that it 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 doesn't one of the many reasons it doesn't get its due, because I think despite the fact that they centered more white characters than they did in season one, you can see 
the relationship between the Sabakas and the Barksdales. You because you start to make these connections and draw these lines between one family and another, and you realize there's not much that separates the things that they want besides the industry that they chose. And in right. the Sabatka's case, it was it was blurred because mm-hmm. they chose both drugs and to work, um, you know, to make a, a to make a living in the legitimate way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, the failing of one uh part of the American dream led to pursuing it in a different way. See, it, it in that the wire, it it I love that the show did this, and of course we've discussed this, but when these systems break down, you start to kind of see just how human everyone is. And I'm telling you, there are people listening to my voice, and I love that the show does this. It could happen to you. It really could. Everything that you think is vile, everything that you think is unimaginable, things you think that you would never do, I assure you that it could happen to you and it's not years away it's months away depending on how badly things go um and questioning sort of that and look making characters look inside of themselves um for a sort of common and uncommon morality it's what the show is so great at and season two did not fail no not at all i mean i think it's a perfect sort of entry point into uh, the rest of, of The Wire. And that's how you have to look at it when you watch the series in its totality. Look at season two as a bridge season because there's so many tentacles that jump off from this season, uh, understanding better and getting a fully formed picture of who Prop Joe is. Mm-hmm. Um, they plant the seed for a, a, a little, you know, a, a little, I don't want to, it's not a fully formed beef, but obviously that Avon and Stringer are, starting to be on different pages like all the most important storylines kind of have their tentacles it starts in season two even down to Kima uh being a a, a little uh, feeling a little out of sorts about having a baby the fact that it's very clear she doesn't really want one (laughs) so and even what with uh, as we see the, the the snapshot of Daniel sleeping in a separate room from his wife so it's like it's a lot of little details in here that wind up stretching the rest of the series, which, you know, I think it only stands. Can I go uh, further? Can I go further? Yeah, you can go further. Mm -hmm. Season one is kind of like a prequel. It's kind of a prequel season. It's, and I know that's, of course it's a prequel because it comes through it, but it, it almost seems like when you really get to the end of season two, season two is more The Wire than season one. There's never another season like season one. Never another season like season one again. Season one almost seems like background info for the show really to kind of get its legs. I'm really on season two right now. I mean, the season two season is what I'm in right now. So yeah, I'm digging it. You actually, uh, I think you might be onto something there because I'm sitting here thinking about it and considering what you're saying. Season one just kind of laid out things to you about who the characters are, who the players will be, who you need to know, what you need to understand about uh, the Barksdales, what you need to understand about the detail, how the police structure works. Um, So it's very much, it's kind of like when you're in college and you have that introductory course, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, that's what it is. And in season two, you're starting to get into 200 or 300 level classes. Yeah, Um, yeah. You know, except for if you're Stringer, because, you know. Oh, Jesus. 
<laughs> I knew it was coming. You and your macroeconomics one-on-one class, Stringer. Y'all gonna you gonna lead us to freedom. <laughs> yo, this ain't yo, this ain't your business class, G. <laughs> That's right, Avon. You tell him. Okay, with all that out of the way, with our general takeaways from season two, let's get down to the nitty gritty. Much like we did in season one, where we gave out awards at the end of a spectacular season, we will do so again for season two. So. Let us start with the best performance of season two, Van. Who would you give this award to? I'm going to go with James Ranson as Ziggy. And I'll tell you why. It's the character that I was most affected by. Now, you guys are going to pull this up, and I have done an about face on Ziggy to a degree. I, I went, yeah, I was saying he back. also was the character you came into this season hating the most. Hating the most. But going back and look at it, looking at it, I think pound for pound, um, and I say this because he's a scrawny little guy. Also was an inside man. It was a good night. Uh, pound for pound, Ziggy injected and sort of subtracted the most emotional weight from most of the scenes that he was in. He was cringeworthy. He was a very uncomfortable character to watch. Uh, he was sometimes a funny character to watch. He was sometimes a downright despicable character to watch. But every time uh, Ziggy was in a scene, you left that scene feeling something intense for him. Uh, and that's a lot for an actor to carry off. Uh, for like that's a, that's a lot for an actor to get off to to have so much. Um, added to every single scene with their performance. And I thought, um, going back and looking at it, I would give it to Ziggy. Well, I, I think that's an excellent pick. I mean, to be honest, because I, I think, um, you know, Ziggy had a lot of emotional swings mm-hmm. in this in this season. But, and while I may not have hated Ziggy as much as you did at the start of the season, he certainly was not among my favorites. Right. And I... I grew the sympathy I had for him grew as the season went on. Mm. You know, at first he kind of understandably so he's kind of annoying. I mean, he's got got a pet duck that he's giving beer to, and of course he kills because ducks and alcohol don't mix. Not supposed to do PSA. It. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, or was it a geese? Whatever it was, like his animal. Mm-hmm. I think it was a duck. Mm-hmm. Um. So he's doing annoying shit like that, and oh, you know, he starts off in such a weak position because. Yeah, I mean, this uh, a lot of of what unravels happens because Ziggy can't uh, accurately disperse a package and winds up getting in deep with with cheese and everything is kind of off to the races. So his incompetence is your starting point with with Ziggy. So it's not a surprise that if you did not think the best of him as a result, but as it goes on and particularly as we get more insight into his relationship with his father then you understand why he turned out exactly the way that he did. Sure. And um, so I, I would say, because I feel like this was the case in season one, you know, as many times as we've both seen The Wire, there's going to be characters that every time you watch it, you come away with a different understanding. And I thought this time around, I came away with my most complete understanding of who Ziggy was. Mm. But despite his phenomenal performance in season two, the person I would pick as having the best performance is his father. And that would be Frank. Interesting. I don't think he has as many 
layers to him as Ziggy did, just as as a character. I mean, Frank's very single minded about preserving the union at all costs. Right. Like, that's his goal. But all that being said, you see through him not just the crumbling of the American dream, but you understand very much so why people like him are in the position that they're in is that everything they knew is slipping away from them and they are doing whatever it takes to hold on to something that can never be what it was once again. And so there's this fight of it fight against inevitability that Frank has that I thought, um, you know, really kind of brought home a problem that you see in a lot of cities like Baltimore. We've seen the same in Pittsburgh and Detroit It's like, what do you do when, physical industry is no longer a part of the DNA of the city that you grew up in and you don't have another avenue to pursue supporting yourself. Mm -hmm. And so it was at the same time, it was a cautionary tale. It was also, um, you know, it was also something I think that was very, very relatable and him trying to not just hold on to this union (laughs) piece by piece. You see Frank's morals, gradually dissipate yeah right gradually dissipate it's like oh yeah i knew ziggy and uh nikki were boosting stuff but i didn't know it was like this and then he slowly accepts his role in getting the greek uh greek shipment into baltimore it's like he became a product of his environment and i think simon wanted us to understand how easy it is, as you mentioned, to make those kind of harsh choices. Because when it comes to, as we know, when it comes to black people and and we hear about, um, you know, black folks who may have dealt drugs or may have had some encounter with the criminal justice system, the level of judgment is super harsh. And people automatically say, well, how could they do this? And why don't they just follow the law? Why don't they just comply? And then you understand through this family is that, yeah, that's real easy to say, but have you ever been faced with survival the way they are faced with survival? Mm. Then you can start to understand some of the choices. You may not agree with them, but you at least have a a level of compassion and sympathy because you understand how they wound up in that position. So I thought Frank was spectacular. Even in death, he was spectacular as he laid there. He was good as he laid. And that, that was, you know, wasn't some body double that was uh, actually him. So as he laid there in depth, and I think you brought this up on the last podcast about how even though he was dead, he still seemed to be a major character in haunting. the season. Yeah, he was haunting everybody in the season finale. So shout out to Chris Bauer, who played Frank Sabaka. I thought he did uh, a superb job. Was anybody else in the running for best performance for you? I'm sure there were people in the running, but like, did you did you have to make a, a tough decision or did you just automatically know that it's got to be Ziggy? I would have given it to D'Angelo, but he just wasn't in enough of the season. You know, and, that's funny because that's who I thought you were going to pick. Right. I was like, I bet you he picks D'Angelo. No, I like it. For, for me, it was a season where like <clears throat> there was a it, it was. So season two was kind of like Spurs basketball, meaning the ball was getting passed around a lot. It was moving. Well, I guess Warriors basketball. Warriors basketball. They have probably the best ball movement. Probably Warriors basketball up until maybe the three-minute mark, and that's when just KD is going to take every shot. But, <laughs> but, uh, but <laughs> you know, but Warriors basketball. So, uh, it, and so in something like that, you, you're looking for the Steph or the Clay, the guy who can 
score 37 when only really having the ball in his hands for 60 seconds or a minute or whatever it was when Clay did that. Go back, watch it on YouTube. It is just still astounding. God, why did you take sports from us? Um, but but no, so and and D'Angelo had that, right? Because he was such a pivotal character. And the season itself went through so many twists and turns that it seems like such by the time you get to the end of season two, it seems like such a long time between the point that D'Angelo was a major part of it. But when he was, he really was. And I thought that he was great, but it just ended up going so much further than what was going on in the jail. So I couldn't give it to him. Yeah, it is tough because it almost feels as if um, the anything going on with the, the with the Barksdale was was just a nice kind of side plot. And even when it came to major characters in the detail, I mean, we don't see McNulty. Yeah, I mean, he's he's barely in it mm-hmm. up until he rejoins the detail. Yeah. Yeah. So there was it, it was an interesting approach by Simon to kind of remove some of the major characters that were established in season one from season two. Uh, Hence why, as I've said before, why I think they got some of the backlash. All right. On to our next category, which is best boss. Mm. Who van was the best boss of this season? Prop Joe. Prop Joe. Prop Joe. Prop Joe. The the Geneva convention come to life. Yes. (laughs) Prop Joe to me. This is the rise of Prop Joe. Prop Joe to me is the only boss in this season that isn't deeply, deeply flawed. In this season, all Prop Joe's people come up. They, you know what I mean? All like all Prop Joe's people. I mean, Cheese gets a, a little rat shot, but he's straight. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? All Prop Joe's people come up. Prop Joe makes the right moves. He puts his people in position to succeed. You know I mean, I mean, he did negotiate a hell of a deal with a rival. No, negotiated a hell of a deal with a rival. Uh, Prop Joe is connected to the Greek. He's connected to Stringer. Like, he's got the... This is Prop Joe, um, like, you know, at, at his finest. We learn a little bit more about some of the machinations, you know, of this man. And it seems to me he is in total control. In this season, season two, Prop Joe's people are the safest. They're the safest and the most prosperous. That's why I would give it to Prop Joe, season two best boss. No, that's all fair. I mean, he definitely exposed the fact that he runs a a pretty tight operation. Mm -hmm. Um, He had a a plug. His plug was was way more solid than I think what Avon and Stringers used to be. I mean, to get it right there, you know, in Baltimore, he ain't mm-hmm. got to go to New York. It's nope. right there. He ain't got to go to New- Atlanta. It is right there. For me, uh, the best boss, and I know this is probably going to seem like an odd choice, especially given what happened at the end. Um, usually, I think, or I like to think that most of us, when we work for people in real life, the number one quality when you ask people, like, the type of person they either want to work for, the type of uh, manager or supervisor they want to be, one of the qualities that always comes up is loyalty right and for good or bad there was no boss more loyal than frank sabaka Mm. and he essentially destroyed his whole family for this union right and well i'm i'm saying that's certainly extreme and that's misguided but the fact is is that that's how much the union meant to him is that he was willing to sacrifice whatever he needed to uh, you know, going and sitting among 
development executives to try to get them to Grainier Pier, like greasing the political pockets of of Brucey, doing all these things. Like he really sacrificed a lot to try to ensure some kind of future for this union. He covered for his guys. He got drunk with his guys. I mean, if not for being lightweight, a criminal fuck up, he probably would have been a pretty good boss. Yeah, he, or we're, we're to believe that he was a great boss for many, many, many years up to the point that we meet him. Right. So I, you know, I mean, I probably on some level uh, really like working for somebody like Frank Sabaka. See, you know, because he, he covered for everybody at all costs. My only problem with it is that doing what he asked you to do is going to get you fucked up in the end. <laughs> The only reason I would like, look, you're right. Cause like we've both had bosses. I'm assuming you've had bosses. We both have bosses that we had to part ways with, but we've also both had bosses <laughs> that we felt like had our, <laughs> had our backs. Right? right. 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 And so, and so being that that is the case, there's nothing better than that. than coming to somebody with like, yo man, damn, this is going to be having somebody go, don't worry about it. We got you. Whatever, whatever. There's only one thing that's, but it's it's a difference. I've also been in a place, not to get too deep into the weeds here, where I've done something because people at certain organizations have asked me to do them and then got my ass kicked out here in these streets for things that I've done. And so I don't ever want to be in that situation again. So because of that, I'm not so sure I could give best boss to Frank Sabaka, but if we're grading on just loyalty or if loyalty is a major part of it, he's a fucking fantastic boss because I think he was loyal to a fault. He would have done anything and he eventually did give his life uh, for the poor union, for sure. Yeah, you, you can say he did that. Not many of the of not many bosses you could say that about that they gave their lives for right, right. The, the greater good. Right. OK, now the opposite. Who was the worst boss this season? <laughs> uh, yeah, well. Once again, a crowded field. <laughs> it's a crowded field for Wars Boss. Um, really, for me, it was between, and this is so hard. It was between. Don't want to say it. You know it's true. You know it's true, man. <laughs> say it. Say it. <laughs> it was between Sabaka and Stringer. <laughs> and I ah, got to go with Stringer, man. <laughs> Damn, dog. <laughs> Yes. String just caused so much shit. He was Welcome doing, to the light. String was doing his best in season two. But String, String caused so much shit. Actually, now that I think about it, I'm going to make this a tie. Not between Stringer and Sabaka, who's out there for best boss too. But when I think about it, it's a tie between Stringer and Avon. So you thought, but Avon got an excuse. He's in prison. Okay? I, I know, but Avon still, the reason why Stringer is an incompetent boss in this season is because he's giving orders and not really in tune or, 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 or on the same page with the one guy that he has to take orders with. Therefore, he's actually starting wars making his people unsafe, making things around people unsafe is kind of what Stringer ended up doing. But that's because of his deficiency uh, 
as a communicator as a, and a delegator and all of that stuff. Avon, to me, is just as sort of uh, responsible for not seeing that it's a situation that Avon is in that's causing this as well. Remember, Roberto and the people from New York don't think that they can trust Avon because Avon is in jail. Avon is in jail because they couldn't outmove the cops in the first season. So it would have been smarter as a boss thinking long-term for Avon to humble himself and actually go along with Stringer's plan because they don't have any product. They can't hold the towers. They ain't got Weebay. They ain't got Stinkum. They ain't got Bird. And Avon did one thing that a bad boss always does is he refused to adapt. So, like, I am going to give tandem bad bosses to both Avon and Stringer. Okay. So it's not just String. It's Avon, too. Way to carry Stringer's water yet again. (laughs) You find a way to sanitize what a terrible (laughs) boss that he is we forget not not only of him going behind Avon's back, cutting the deal with Prop Joe, yeah. him being the one who brings together Brother Muzon and Omar, that failed attempt to try to knock off Brother yeah. Muzon, which was terrible, him dragging Prop Joe up into the shit with his bad leadership. It was like all of this. Literally everything that happens in, in season three is all is is pretty much all Stringer's fault from season two. This is all the repercussions of him, you know, thinking he worked at Microsoft when he is actually, as Avon had to remind him, the street is the street always. Mm-hmm. Um, those are fine choices for worst boss. I would tend to think Stringer deserved it more than Frank did, but by far to me, the worst boss was Stan Donald Trump Valchek. Mm. It was Stan Valchek. Just a terrible person. I mean, there was, at least I will say with Stringer, despite my utter disdain for his entire existence, is that you understood the method to his madness, Mm -hmm. right? It was like, all right, he's trying to keep this product going. He realizes they're in short supply. He's got to lie to Avon a little bit, go into this partnership with a rival. You you understood his rationale despite his shitty execution. Valchek was on one from the beginning. He's not good at his job. He's petty. He's insecure. And he needs to have his ego fed to even do something remotely close to being known as public safety. Mm-hmm. I live for every picture that he got of that damn van. And I was so glad that Frank Sabaka... <laughs> pulled off the petty stunt of the year by sending that shit to Ubekistan and beyond right. and making sure that Stan Valchek never got his hands on it. From the I grave was, as well. From the grave, right. right. I was giddy with relief when Prez knocked his ass out or at least punched, you know, he, he fired on him. He had all that shit coming. And, um, you know, just the way that he tried to make it about, I mean, not try to, he made it about himself. This all started from stained glass because mm-hmm. Stan Valchek was pissed that somebody got a more prominent position. So it just shows that when you have petty plus power, that shit is a recipe for disaster. And I wish Prez would have got a couple more licks in because (laughs) that dude's an asshole. So fuck you and everything you stand for, Stan Donald Trump Valchek. Do you know the only reason why I can't give it to him? And he was was number one on the power rank. It's because like, if he doesn't, He's just like the worst kind of boss. And I'll tell you why the worst type of boss. 
is because he actually stumbled into doing something kind of good. Yeah. Like the girls. But that makes it more infuriating I know, though, to me. I know, yeah. man. Like the girls, they never clear the case of the girls and find out what happened to them or bring down parts of what was going on if not for his ego. So he actually, despite being that, like he actually kind of got shit done, which I guess String did too, but people got hurt because of what Stringer was doing. You know what I mean? So I don't know, but I could see Valchek too. He's just such a despicable character, man. He's up there on a list of why are despicable characters there, Valchek. I don't like him. No question. Next category is definitely, I mean, it, it will be a difficult category no matter what season of The Wire that you're talking about. Best scene of the season, Van. What was, which scene was the best one to you? That's a toughie. It's very tough. That's a toughie. And yet I feel as if there's an undisputed winner. <laughs> you feel like there's an undisputed winner? Well, why don't you go first? I would like to hear okay. what the undisputed, because it's a tough one for me. It, it is tough because it was a lot of poignant, memorable scenes, but it's hard or I will say this it was a two man race for me Mm -hmm. it came down to Omar's courtroom scene Mm -hmm. and D'Angelo's death Mm. and I ultimately went with Omar's courtroom scene Mm -hmm. you say you aren't here testifying against the defendant because of any deal you made with police true that that you're here because you 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 want to tell the truth about what happened to Mr. Gant in that housing project parking lot yep when in fact you are exactly the kind of person who would, if you felt you needed to, shoot a man down on a housing project parking lot and then lie to the police about it, would you not? And look, I ain't never put my gun on no citizen. You are a moral, are you not? You are feeding off the violence and the despair of the drug trade. You're stealing from those who themselves are stealing the lifeblood from our city. You are a parasite who leeches off Just like you, the culture man. of drugs. Excuse me? What? I got the shotgun. We got the briefcase. It's on the game, though, right? Again, Omar was somebody, he was kind of peppered throughout season two of The Wire. Really big moments, but not in it nearly clearly as much as he was in season one. But in season two, that courtroom scene is Nino Brown-esque. It is, I didn't have a silver spoon in my mouth. I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Ms. Hawkins. Like, it was all of that. Mm -hmm. And he does something that I don't think you see done the entire series of The Wire, except for in that moment. He completely just outsmarts and makes uh, Marv Levy look stupid. And that is hard Marv Marv Levy, you called him. You called him... (laughs) I I called him... I showed the color Marv. Sorry, not the Buffalo, the former Buffalo not, Bills. Not the former Buffalo Bills. And Marv Levy had it tough too. And went to four he straight did. Super Bowls. That's right. But Marv Levy. Any, right. He was not outsmarted. Right. <laughs> the, the way that uh, Maurice Levy, Maurice was, Levy. Outsm- right. was outsmarted. Uh, wrong, wrong M. Levy. Uh-huh. But uh, that scene is just uh, is so powerful because, you know, as one of the, the conscious voices and conscious characters of the show, Omar just breaks down the entire system and how everybody's a part of it and how Levy is no different than him. The only difference is suit versus shotgun, as he points out to him. So the way that he outsmarts him 
uh, I thought was was truly exceptional. That to me is is the scene, the defining scene of season two. Hmm. You're probably right. Um, it, I didn't have D'Angelo's death scene. I had a couple of scenes written down. I had Omar's scene, which is, and I'll excuse myself for this. When you're watching The Wire, I mean, that's one of the most signature scenes of the entire series. As season two goes along, the beginning of the season gets further and further pushed into the recesses of your mind. So it's hard to even go back there and think about Bird and Omar and stuff like that. It almost feels like it's part of season one. Um, but yeah, that is kind of, you know, they use Omar basically as a device there to explain the hypocrisy of the criminal justice system to the audience in a very plain way because Omar speaks very directly. As far as, you know, defense attorneys like Levy who in their own way are also exploiting the community, exploiting the drug game and have no interest in finding out truth or justice, but at the same time are involved in justice because they are, you know, sworn to defend their clients to the best of their ability. So it's all this gigantic sort of paradox and Omar is kind of shining light on that. So it's a very important scene, not just in this season, but in the entire series. The reason why I had a different scene in mind uh, and it was hard for me was because there's scenes in this season that mean more to me. Not that are more important, but they mean more. So the scene between Avon and Stringer when they're visiting and they have the little schism and, they, and he goes, why? And he, they don't dap up. I know that's a very incident, but it means so much to me because of what it means for those means for those two characters' relationship. It's so emotionally good and weighty. And there's something else that the show does, and it can they only do it on two occasions, uh, if I quite remember. One is going to be a later later on, but one is um, in this season. There's two occasions in The Wire where they give a character an opportunity to eulogize themselves before they die. So, like, it's the two times where a character, before they get taken out, gets the opportunity to wax poetic about what they, how they see themselves in the world, where they see themselves at, what they did wrong, and just sum up the whole thing, and then... A couple of a couple of scenes later, they're dead. It happens uh, again. I think in season four. Um, yeah, that's definitely season four. But it happens in this season, and that's uh, D'Angelo in the Great Gatsby scene. Like at the end of the book, you know, boats and tides and all. It's like you can change up, right? You can say you somebody new. You can give yourself a whole new story. But what came first? is who you really are. And what happened before is what really happened. And it don't matter that some fool say different because the only thing that make you different is what you really do or what you really go through. So D'Angelo in The Great Gatsby scene is totally, obviously, talking about himself, talking about, it's all about, you know, authenticity, being who you really are, being planted in a fake world, uh, excuse me, in a being in a real world, but holding up a fake persona. And you almost see in that how he connected with that book and how he finally, after all of this, was able to make peace with the lie that he was living. Okay. 
and he had decided that he was going to go on and just be who he was for as long as he could. And then, of course, he dies. So when I see scenes like that, the Omar scene is masterful. It's a lot more fun to watch. Um, and it undoubtedly is the best scene of this uh, of this season. But I just love the Great Gatsby scene. I love to see people have a reckoning um, uh, or experience a reckoning kind of with themselves. And that's kind of what D'Angelo was doing, uh, doing during that scene. Well, maybe going forward, we can make the distinction uh, when we do a season three wrap up between best scene and most meaningful scene, mm. because those are two different things, um, you know, because that's why I struggle with whether it was D'Angelo's death or was it the Omar Court scene? Right. Because the Omar Court scene, just as a scene, is just incredible. It's just amazing. But the meaning of D'Angelo dying is just huge. Mm -hmm. It's just enormous. Um, and there's a lot that comes as ramifications from that. And it is, I mean, it, it's one of the ultimate precursors of the fracturing, or to use your word, the schism between schism. Avon, schism, mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the fracturing between Avon and Stringer. It's like, part, there's a lot of it that starts it in what happens with D'Angelo. Mm -hmm. So in terms of meaning, then you can understand it. It just so happened in season one that when Wallace was killed, it was both a great scene and it was meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, right. But right. Right. Very true. Right. But sometimes, but sometimes uh, one is not necessarily with the other, like with D'Angelo, you know, his whole awakening in, in prison and realizing um, I think we both talked about this earlier this season about him experiencing like real freedom for the first time, even though he's in prison. Mm -hmm. And it was just meaningful just seeing his character kind of develop uh, overall. So another category we have here is the good old rookie of the year. Mm. <laughs> I wonder, I was, though I did wonder if we, if we should do a most improved as well. Well, we'll take her on that. Most um, improved would be good as well. Okay, all right, we'll 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 move on to that. We'll do that one next. But we'll start with the rookie of the year. To me, it was um a very clear front runner for this one. Uh and I will let you go first to to tell me and enlighten me uh who you saw as your rookie of the year. Nikki. Nikki. Mm -hmm. I so did not think you were gonna say that. It's I Nikki. love it when you surprise me, Van. It's, like, it's, it's Nikki. <laughs> Nikki, uh Nikki, in a lot of ways, um, he's a character that moved around the most. And at the end of it, he was the last man standing. He's a rookie that became a vet. You know what I mean? He was playing a lot of meaningful minutes by the end of, this, uh, of the season. And shit, when free agency, meaning prison and death, took, uh, 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 took everybody, he was kind of the last guy that was standing there as far as the new characters that came into the show. Now, obviously... There are new characters that came into the wire this season that are going to be around for the rest of the series. Um, and I think because of that, they had, they were a little less impactful on the overall storyline than what, than what Nikki was. Uh, but yeah, I'm going with Nikki. Uh, I, it, obviously, technically, Frank is a rookie too, but I give Nikki, he's got more rookie vibes to me. So I'm think, I think it's clear cut Nikki Savaka to me. I think Nikki Savaka's character, um, it, 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 like in a lot of ways, 
even more so than Frank, Nikki Zabaka's character, you kind of see he's, how can I put this? Like, so Frank had a clear, he was going for, he was, he was sort of there for a large group of people. He was representing, should I say, a large group of people. So almost everything that Frank does is excusable because he's putting himself up for so many different people. So it's easy to kind of put him in the category of, look, if it's good for the port, he's going to do it. Crimes or whatever. Nikki's different. He's more relatable because he doesn't feel any of that. Everything he's doing is for himself. And so when his choices shrink and he does something wrong, to me, that's more relatable as a human being because, you know, the, the most of the, the majority of us, when we do things, we're just trying to figure out how we're going to have a better life. And society is made up of individuals, boom, 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 that are making decisions about how they can have a better life. And those decisions extrapolated out over thousands and millions of people are how you get good structures and good societies or bad structures and bad societies. So Nikki's an important character in that we see how he disintegrates into what he is and we see how his choice matrix sort of gets shrinked. Um, so a shrunk. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I dug him and he was a little annoying. Touch, touch racialistic, a touch, <laughs> a touch of racialism, a touch of racialisms for Nikki. But I thought he was a rookie of the year. Who'd you have? Uh, so as my rookie of the year, even though this is a little bit like when Ben Simmons, I guess, won rookie of the year, even though he had, he had like he was, it wasn't his first year. It wasn't his first year because this is a, this is a bit of an older gentleman. Okay, but I'm gonna say the Greek was rookie of the year. Okay, I'm with it. Yeah, I'm with uh, it. Probably the oldest rookie of the year in history, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the Greek, he said very little. He wasn't even Greek, and he created that perfect air of mystery around his story that had him as this like looming but intimidating figure, despite the fact that. All the people he dealt with in his world, with maybe the exception of Vondas, I mean, they could whoop his ass. Ain't like he's like super muscular or whatever, but he carried himself in a way that denoted ultimate power and authority. Not to mention, I mean, he came up with an ingenious or he had he was in an ingenious setup is that he was taking advantage of the war on terror and using that as a gateway to funnel as much drugs as he wanted into the city of Baltimore because <laughs> Homeland Security and the government are so worried about terrorism. Right. They don't give a damn about sex trafficking and or flooding neighborhoods with heroin and all sorts of other drugs. So mm-hmm. it was a perfect scenario. Uh, and as a rookie, you know, he was able to to benefit with a wide open offense. Yeah, yeah he was. <laughs> and he took full scale advantage uh, of it. And honestly, I mean, he could on some level, not on some level, he also could have very well been in the position or strongly in the conversation for best boss. Here he has an entire sure. criminal. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to well-run, a well-run organization, like he had created an entire setup where he faced no liability. The police totally underestimated what somebody in his position would look like, which allowed him to slither through the cracks and slither away from them. And again, he was using the government to do it. Uh So it's just like, technically, when it comes to uh, masterminds, it was honestly, the Greek actually fits that category much more so 
than Stringer Bell. Oh, he is. Come on now. Did you see how you just use that? <laughs> yes, just I use that to take a shot at Stringer. Yeah, but yeah, he definitely is. Um, it's interesting. He's an old looking rookie of the year. Who is that guy that he used to look mad old, bro? He played for the Royals. And he won rookie of the year in like 95 or 94. Mm-hmm. He played for the Royals. And he looked super old. He was like 27 <laughs> or something like that. Like, you remember this guy? He didn't play that long, but he won. He won AO. Look at it. Like, so you're saying he's him. What's this, what's this dude's name? Let me look it up real quick. I'm sorry. I'll think of it. You said in the 90s, right? In the 90s. In the 90s. Okay. It was like he was play. play I remember he played for Kansas City. He might have even Bob Hamlin. Do you remember him? Bob Hamlin. Bob Hamlin. Bob Hamlin. Bob Hamlin. <laughs> I got it right here. Bob Hamlin. Bob, he's the Bob Hamlin Rookie of the Year. Because I don't think he was that old. That is such an obscure but awesome reference. I just remember looking at him when I was watching baseball back in the day. Be like, he's a rookie? Like, he like you know what I mean? Because you look at Chipper Jones back then, and Chipper Jones looked mad young. And then this guy looked old as shit. I'm, I'm looking at his uh, uh, a picture of his baseball card, and I, I can see why you would say that. Like, he is... He is a very mature-looking rookie. He looked old. Look at this guy. First of all, he does not look like a, a professional athlete. But look at Bob <laughs> Hamlin. <laughs> Shout out to Bob Hamlin. Those are the glasses, too. But yeah. <laughs> what a reference. What a reference. Bob <laughs> what Hamlin. What a reference. Um, Bob Hamlin. Bob Hamlin. That would That's be the Greek. Greek. Uh, That's the Greek. But okay. yeah, I couldn't, couldn't get Greek. Great choice for that. Uh, now we'll go on to most improved. Who is the most improved player of season two? Okay, so most improved player... There are a couple of people this could have been. Okay. Mm. Um, deep field. A deep field for most improved, man. Uh, definitely a deep field for most improved. Uh, you could have gone with McNulty. Okay. Because he grows up a Thinking little bit. Thinking about where he started from. Thinking like about where banished, he started from. Banished from, to the boat. Yeah, banished to the boat. Um, he, he, he comes up a little bit. You, but, but I think it's clear cut that this is Bodie. Bodie. Bodie is most improved. Bodie was a little fucking pissant in the first season. Yeah. But in the in the first season, Bodie was a little bit like, you know, everybody else from around there was a but Bodie now has real responsibility. Bodie is almost at least on the street, kind of Stringer's number two in a lot of ways. Bodie handles a lot of business for Stringer. The character has a lot more responsibility. You see Bodie's hustle a little bit bit more. Bodie's a little bit more seasoned. Bodie has real street wisdom in this season. Because now he's an old head. Now he's kind of an old head. You see see Bodie, even in the scene where it's Bodie and the guys where he says, you know, I got to let y'all go. And they go, can we get some of this severance pay, some separation pay? I separate your ass, separate my ass, get out of here. You know, Bodie's got a little bit more to do. He's made, he had made some mistakes before, but it seems like he's learning and it seems like he, he's got real flex and real hustle on the street. So most improved, you go with a lot of characters, man. There's a lot of characters out there uh, in this season that kind of find themselves uh, a, a little bit. But if I'm looking at it, I'm going to go with the character that I've seen make the biggest jump between season one and season two, um, which is kind of the way I'm looking at it even though you can look at most improved throughout the season, I'm going to go with Bodie. Yeah, no, that's, that's a solid choice for sure. Um, and if not for him getting into it with that rival crew, 
you could have made an argument, a very, you know, uh, you, you could have at least made a small case that he was one of the better bosses. Right. Because and to your point, when you think about what his mentality was and how kind of hot-headed he was in season one versus season two, where he seemed to be very slow, you know, to do those things. He's, it's like he was the point guard who used to dunk all the time and figured out it was better for his knees if he just, like, laid the ball in. Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, so getting this Bobby Hurley on lay the ball. Up. Yes, that's right. Um, I think the clear cut choice, uh, however, for most improved is Beatty by far. Oh, you mean her. just she improves over the course of the season, gets better at her job for sure. It's true. Yeah. I mean, she went from being the port police riding around really only half caring about her job. She wanted something easy, something that. Um, you know, because she prioritized her family because, uh, you know, when they talked about reasons why they got into police work, like her reasons weren't the same as everybody else. It was a real job but, job. Yeah, exactly. And she goes from being the, the poor police riding around in the squad car with um, headphones on, which is illegal, by the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you can't do that. But she did. You know, I guess she had a, a, a CD disc man or a Walkman or something. I right. guess. Uh, she goes from that to being honestly a real detective, like a credible detective. I mean, she was nurtured by Bunk and Freeman and even McNulty. And she winds up kind of having a real knack for it. She was never as incompetent as, say, Prez was. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but her evolution into a real detective I mean, she was by far the most improved in terms of, you know, how she did her job and what she contributed to the group. Yeah. And even how she managed to fit into the culture of this unit without ever really sacrificing the 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 values of who she was. And they, you know, they, like also, she they even talked about how much flex she was showing and how much better she was than they got exactly. there. Yeah, by the end, she was following people around and doing stuff. She was <laughs> really Yeah, yeah, she it. was the one who followed Vonda's, you know, sure. the, the, the hotel room. And these are things that weren't really in her skill set at the beginning. Sure. And she and she was able to still maintain a lot of her integrity. She didn't turn into a lush. She didn't start um, sleeping around. She didn't do any of those things. She was still very much herself within the context of a group that has some big personalities. Like she still managed to kind of stand out uh, on her own. So to me, you know, uh, she found her calling in many respects, even though when it ends, it's like she's back doing the same thing that she kind of used to do, uh, used to do before. Yeah. So there, there is my pick for most in solid, solid, solid choice. All right, so we have our six man. We have our most improved, and now on to what was the best trivia nugget of the year? Um, <laughs> it was not Chardine being in the scene again. I was about to say she, it was not her being in the last scene. All right, that was not it. We we understand. Maya culpa continues. I was so about, stop tweeting I, us I was, about Chardine. No, that was my answer. My answer was the best trivia nugget of the season is that this was the last time we saw Chardine. <laughs> by, the, by the way, I want to say something about that. We were wrong, but maybe it's the last time we saw Chardine in a meaningful way. Okay, or we it, could always skate on that. We we could all is that is that a hill is that a hill we can stand on? Can we? Yeah, st- can, we, we can stand on that hill. Be we, like, no. So what we meant was what we what we had tried you. to say was 
Exactly. Because does she even speak when she comes back in season five? Nah, like, she doesn't I, speak. I don't, I don't think she, she speaks. speaks. Look, it don't count unless she speaks. Yeah, like let, right? let us know. But I, but you know, that's actually my favorite piece of trivia that we got because because we got so much shit for we got it. so much shit for it, man. For sure. Which was good because it let us know that our listeners are going to hold us accountable and that they take the wire very seriously. Like, you just can't let shit walk. Hmm. You know, this is this ain't like spades where you, the queen of hearts just going to walk out here in these wire streets. Right? Streets. The queen of hearts is going to walk. Ooh. Queen of hearts never walks. I mean, yeah, like, never, maybe never. occasionally. Yeah, never walks. Like, yeah. like it rarely. You, you don't count it as a book. That's for damn sure. Don't. Queen of No. Uh, but you know, actually, my favorite piece of trivia was that it's not trivia. I'm just messy like that. Was the tea uh, about Dominic West, and I know that's recent, but it was the tea between Dominic West and Lance Reddick because I just love shit like that. They couldn't stand each other, <laughs> or it was a one sided one. I will say this: like uh, Dominic West never indicated that he felt that it was a reciprocal one, and he enjoyed the fact that he got under Lance Reddick's skin. And by the way. <laughs> another category we should invent and we should invent is one of my favorite moments throughout season two and throughout the time we've done this podcast is the is the Van Lathan sidebar. Mm. The Van Lathan sidebar is a thing. And you told a pretty good one with Lance Reddick talking about seeing him at the gym. At the gym. Looking all swollen lean. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And that was a very good Van Lathan sidebar. I, you know what? I had another Van Lathan sidebar for that episode that I forgot to tell you about. It had to do specifically with you. When you were talking Ooh. about uh, your Michael Jordan thing. Remember when you were saying that uh, you didn't want to, uh, um, you didn't want to like admit that Michael Jordan, what were you saying again? You didn't want to admit that Michael Jordan was the best? Or yeah. You, because I'm from Detroit and I'm petty Detroit? and this is how we do. I knew that about you. Do you know how I know that about you? Because I remember with great, great glee and joy, the first thing I ever remember reading from you. Oh, was it my Kobe column? I was, I've been in barbershops all <laughs> over Louisiana saying, yo, Kobe Bryant is better than Michael Jordan. Not greater, but better. And then as soon as I said this, I had this down to a T. You guys go back and read your mail on this. That is a very great piece. Oh, like, great. That's what I would love to look forward to is a bunch <laughs> of people in my mentions. Thank you, man. <laughs> Why? You said Kobe better than Mike. So, so look, I remember as soon as somebody, I had it planned out. And by the way, uh, this is a Van Lathan sidebar on a Van Lathan sidebar. This is meta. This is right. Like this is, this is too good. So I'm going to give you guys a, a, a debating tactic for the barbershop. When you make your point, so, and, and if the point is a little bit is is if the point is very against the grain uh, against conventional wisdom they're gonna say nobody ever would say anything like that you always have an example of someone saying the absurd point that you're making okay i'm not saying this point was absurd but what i'm saying i would say yo actually if you really look at it kobe's better than mike if you just look at it on these things and then people go, no, cut the clippers off. Zip. Wouldn't nobody ever say that? That's stupid. You came up with that. And I'd be like, no, actually ESPN said that. <laughs> ESPN ain't say that. And then bam, Kobe Bryant. Pull up my piece. Pull up Jamel Hill's piece. So when you were saying that, I was thinking, oh, she mind fucked me. This wasn't really about Kobe, rest in peace. 
This was about her deep down hatred for Michael Jordan. Now it all makes sense. Now I'm seeing the shit. It's all coming together. <laughs> now you see it. And then now I feel the need to just quickly say for those who are listening and have not read the column. See, I didn't say he was more accomplished than Michael Jordan. Okay. <laughs> So, you know, just want you to know this. I said, if you compared their actual games, who could do better than what? They were basically a mirror image of each other in so many ways. And when it comes to volume scoring, this is something that Kobe could do very well compared to Michael Jordan. Has, has Jordan put up 81 in the game? Has he? All right, then. All right. Look, look, we're just, no, this is about the wire. So we just go this back. Is about the wire. Right. And that, it was just a comparison of games. Right. That's what it was. As in, right. who could do what and this and that right. or whatever. You also so dissed, I know you also dissed John Starks in that column, too. I mean, okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, sorry about that. No, I'm just kidding. Love you, John Starks. Oh, uh, in case you're my God. Um, I think the best trivia nugget of season two, however, was. One I dropped in the very first uh, episode mm. that we recapped when I had to blow people's minds and tell them that the highest rated season of The Wire mm. was season two. Yeah, that's a pretty good one, yeah. too. Yeah, it's like it was season two to that's used as credible evidence to support this, um, support our assertion that season two really is undervalued and underrated. Um and that, you know, the consistent hate this season uh, faces is not actually backed up by actual evidence. Now, of course, I know some people will say, well, it probably did better because it was more white people in it. And maybe they felt like it wasn't such a black show. And I guess you could sort of say that uh, if you wanted to. That was not a purposeful design on um, necessarily David Simon's part. I mean, he was trying to kind of tell a story. But, yeah, never for whatever you think of season two, it was the highest rated one, which even I was shocked at because I for sure, if you had asked me before I read that, I would have definitely said season three or four. Mm. Definitely. Mm. And, of course, one of one of my favorite categories, uh, MVP is like the, the one that kind of ties everything together. But I have to say that I think I love six man of the year maybe more than some of the rest of them just because hmm. it, this this is a this is as hard as the other ones but even harder because you're looking at all right who got them shots off mm-hmm. you know who came in lit it up aka Lou Williams Jamal Crawford Vinnie Johnson if you want to go old school who was that person in season 2 hmm. I got co co six men co six men of the year all right co six men Hurricane Carver <laughs> I could have gone. I, I could have gone with D'Angelo because, like, we, we talked a little bit about it earlier. It's almost like he kind of he was the the MVP of the second unit a little bit. But Hurricane Carver, Hurricane Carver's little journey of fuckery in this it, it was it was very impressive. It was a very impressive journey of fuckery in this season. The uh, the Fuzzy Dunlop situation. The the uh, all of it. I know that they were kind of the comic relief in this season, and but all of their little machinations, they were the B plot masters this year, masters. Even toward till the end, the case is over. Nikki has come in. They're still sitting on the house when they go to the judge's place to get the warrant. 
they they they're the ones bringing the stuff up the stairs. I just loved it when they were then on. They the just they did they just two men in a truck. At that point. Two men in a truck, like I just pack mules. Yeah, <laughs> I loved it. I loved sort of their little, um, and it was also very important because this is the season that they learned it's not going to happen for them in major crimes. It's the last time we see them in major crimes. So, uh, I co six men of the year to me, Herc and Carmen. Yeah, and even with the, the the whole tennis ball microphone. Yeah, that <laughs> like, whole thing. Uh, they just they just constantly find a way. It's like fucking up is a magnet, and sure. they just drawn to the sun all the time. Exactly. It's just like what, what are they doing? And they're they're two characters who are so sure of their own level of competence that they can't even see how truly incompetent they actually are. They have this inflated idea, like in their minds. They're just as good as Bunk McNulty or Friedman. Right. Like they sure. feel like they're on that level. Right. Which is constantly what convinces them against all common sense to engage in the stupidest of plots mm-hmm. in order to try to get more respect in the unit when they can all see that these two literally could not get their way out of a, a paper bag. So that, right. that's an excellent choice. That's a funny choice. But my six man, again, who can get up shots in a very short period of time? Who can generate offense? Who can inspire, you know, uh, different play calling, if you will? It's got to be Brother Muzon. Oh, wow. That is my sixth man. Because Brother Muzon, yeah, again, somebody, he didn't get a lot of reps in this season. But hardly every, any. Not, hardly any. Every single time, super memorable. Mm-hmm. Even when there are shots of him just literally sitting there reading, whether it be the Atlantic shout out or uh. <laughs> the newspaper. The fact that he dressed in a full on bow tie and glasses sits in the middle of the project, reading the paper just says everything about him. His encounter with Omar, his encounter with Stringer every single time uh, he had a, a scene, he managed to, Probably steal it in steal most it. cases. Steal it. Yeah, I was like, I'm trying to think of like the one with the one with Stringer. He did for sure, and definitely with Omar as they kind of figure out that something is amiss. And, and then again with cheese. And then again with cheese. Like, oh, it's one of my favorite lines of the season. Right. That you need to ask yourself, what do I have to do for this brother not to raise up with this gun? Yeah, with this gun, mm-hmm. man. So, uh, brother moves on is definitely. Uh, to me, he was the he was the Jamal Crawford mm. of this season mm. with the scenes that he was given. So, yes, that was the best trivia nugget. Now on to the money category. The truth. Time is here. Van, who was the MVP of season two? Easily Frank. Frank was the. E- oh, OK. And I'll just say because uh, Frank's struggles, Frank button his head up against the wall. Frank's world, the world that he governed. Frank was God of the world that this took place in. And so in a lot of ways, him moving things around, you know, it's Frank's mistake uh, uh, as far as the girls in the can that leads to Jimmy's involvement. Frank pulls Jimmy in. Frank pulls Sabaka in. Frank pulls major crimes in. Frank is the LeBron James of this season. He gets everybody involved. You know what I mean? Um, The only connection he doesn't really have, to be honest with you, is to, uh, you know, Frank pulls the Greeks in. Uh, the only connection he doesn't really have is to the Barsdales, and that's like a secondary storyline going on here in this 
uh, in this season. So um, I think that one of the reasons Frank died is because that was the only way to end this story. This story would have continued, continued to go on and they had to move away from it had he lived. Um, it, you can't pick it up with somebody else. It's not going to be a situation like it's going to be in West Baltimore where somebody's going to slide in and take Frank's place. In many ways, the character was un, was irreplaceable. And that to me is the definition of an MVP. Somebody that you can't really replace on any other team. Um, that's why guys win the MVP award in all of these different sports because they're irreplaceable. To me, Frank Sabaka was irreplaceable in this season. Um, and that's why he is my MVP. That's a that's a great pick for a season two MVP. But I feel like the person I picked, um, you know, illustrates a lot of the same things you talked about with Frank Sabaka, but just on a different side of it. And if I'm not mistaken, this person, um, I don't remember if it was you or if it was me who picked this person for season one. Um, but they are a potentially a multiple MVP winner. And that would be Mr. Cedric Daniels. Oh, okay. Lieutenant yeah. Daniels was the MVP of season two because we saw him struggle a lot in season one with struggling between trying to do things politically to move up the chain mm -hmm. and things that kind of went against his instincts as a police officer, his instincts as somebody who really cared about public safety to season two, him saying, fuck all that. You know, when he did, <laughs> when he made at first, I mean, he he for like a, a half a second, he was kind of on that bullshit when sure. he was like, this time I'm gonna give him what he wants. I'm gonna just get down a, a, a couple by a bus. We're gonna make this smooth, clean and easy. But when when every time it was a moment of truth, D Daniels delivered every time it even potentially has cost him his marriage because sure. his his wife wanted him to leave the girls in the can alone. And he resisted for a while. Yep, yep. But once he understood that there was something bigger at play um, and that he had the confidence in his unit and in himself that they could actually do this, uh, he went for it. And all those kind of insecurities that he had in season one, you didn't see him as much as season two. Like he was yeah. a real leader from start to finish. That's and even the way, true. yeah. And even the way he got prayers out the jam with Valchek, uh, he went and rolled for him. He got McNulty back on the unit. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was the impossible. Yo, that was right. That was considered not even like, it wasn't even supposed to be done. Like McNulty was so deep in the shit house. It wasn't even a dog house. He was so deeply in a shit house with Rawls that there was no way that anybody thought that he might wind up somehow on the detail. And he assembled the 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 Golden State Warriors of detectives. See, that first time mm -hmm. he had the humps, right? Because yeah. season one, he had to kind of weed them out of the union. Season two, he came back with an all-star team. Hell yeah, for sure. You know, he had, he had Prez knew his role. He had Freeman and he added Bunk. That's like adding KD. Well, like he, and he got added a Bunk. free agent acquisition for sure. Now I get you. I'm with you. Yeah, and then he had an untapped, undiscovered rookie in Beatty. Got her, mm -hmm. right? Rookie of the year. Developed man, her. <laughs> developed her, coached her up. Daniels, man, Daniels was out there like Greg Popovich or Phil Jackson. I'm but he was it. out there. I'm going to say Popovich because he's more of a builder. I'm with but it. But that's who Daniels was in this season. Great offense, efficient ratings. I mean, to me, he is, he has a stronger case 
in season two as MVP than he did in season one, where I felt like he was still trying to find himself. And now when we leave season two, as opposed to season one, remember how he starts season two? This dude is in the basement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's yeah. in property. At the re- and now, yeah. Yes, like, and now he ends this season on a hell of a come up where he's right in line to politically get everything he wanted without selling out. And he did it. Great Daniels pick. did that. Great pick. Great um, pick, Cedric Daniels. I love Cedric Daniels, <laughs> man. I know. Yeah, I mean, I love him. And, you know, and also, uh, as an uh, aside for us, us ladies out there, he gave us some eye candy. And some of the season. fellas. <laughs> and some of fellas, you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't want to exclude them, but yes, he gave us all some eye candy uh, with his lithe and leanness, just flaunting it in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, hey Jim, real quick, we got to go back. You know, the one I forgot was Six Man. We didn't do that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So you can just add that uh, before we get to MVP, since that'll be the last one. All right. I'll just start that one. All right. Three, two, one. All right. Well, everybody, that is a wrap for us for season two. Uh, It's been a long season, but a gratifying and satisfying one. Look at Van doing. You got to do the Tiger Tiger Woods like fist pump, you know. Well, it's like, it's like, what is it? Like that. Yeah, it's like that. Like real hard. Or I guess since we're talking about Kobe, I can do the Kobe Michael Jordan. Like, right. We just like. Right. Just right there. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you all, as always, uh, for hanging out with us, for listening to us. We will be back next. We're starting season three. It goes down. <laughs> it goes all the way down. We're super excited to start this season. I know I am because, man, you thought I was rough on Stringer before. Season three. Oh, my God. All machetes. Only machetes for Stringer. Yeah. Chopper coming out for this dude because his level of fuckery from start to finish is just mind-blowing. So if y'all thought I would let up on Stringer, that shit ain't gonna happen. And y'all know in season three, he really deserved it if you saw it before. But anyway, thank you once again uh, for being on this journey with us. Continue to watch The Wire and most importantly, keep listening to us. We'll see you for season three. <laughs>